The federal government unveiled its mid-year fiscal update this week, but its outlook for the government and the country's economy is less than rosy. The deficit is expected to grow, while economic growth is expected to slow in 2024. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post political reporter Ryan Tumulty joins me to discuss what this means for the country's bottom line, the political ramifications for the government, and what measures are in the update to help Canadians. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Ryan, the Liberals unveiled their fall economic update this week, and it didn't offer much good news in terms of the government's bottom line or even the country's economic outlook. And and so looking at some of the top line numbers, where does the government sit when compared to the spring budget? So... In a way, what's happened here is the, the government's sort of economic picture has changed. The, the fiscal picture that the government was expecting in the spring is different. In some ways, that works out for the good for the government. In some ways, it works out for the bad. Um, basically, they expected a, a bigger slowdown in the economy last year in 2022 and into 2023. That's what a lot of private forecasts and their own research were telling them was going to happen. But it didn't. In fact, the economy did better last year than they projected. And that actually meant that, uh, you know, a, uh, a deficit they expected to be well over $40 billion last year actually came in well under. But it really appears from the government's projections that what they've done is maybe delayed that pain, but not eliminated it. So now they are forecasting into next year, and they are forecasting a much slower economy. And their their forecast calls for an economy that grows at 0.4% next year, which is almost a hiccup. And with that, now they are projecting a much bigger uh, deficit next year, about $4 billion bigger than what they were expecting just a few months ago in the spring. Um, So what they are projecting is, you know, a slowing economy into next year, sort of delaying that that delayed pain that we all expected, as well as inflation that proves a little bit stickier and stays around for a little while longer. And all of that, you know, small little changes have a big impact when they roll through the federal government's, you know, $450 billion budget. And, you know, as it's a massive budget and and we've seen an increased amount of government debt under this government and it, with the increased deficit and and mounting debt for the government, what does that mean for its bottom line when it comes to paying to service that debt? Yeah, it increases that dramatically. So, you know, that figure, uh, even a few years ago before the pandemic was in the neighborhood of about $20 billion a year. Uh, now it is climbing. Uh, last year, it was $35 billion a year. Next year, it will be $46 billion a year. It keeps rising. And by the end of uh, this decade, it'll be over $60 billion. Now, that's well more than what we transfer right now for healthcare to the provinces. It's it's nearly twice what we spend on national defense. So it is becoming a, a big chunk of, of the government's budget um, and something that you know, not only this government, but future governments are really going to have to contend with. You know, it's it's all that COVID debt. It's the CERB payments. It's the wage and rent subsidies. It's, you know, tens of billions, sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars that the government let out during that COVID time. Mm-hmm. 
And just the other day, the, the prime minister was suggesting that, that his government is one that's exercised fiscal restraint. But based on what you're seeing or what people may be saying, is this an update of a government that has shown any restraint? No, I would say that generally this is the update of a government that is now hitting that wall. Um, you know, this has been a big spending government on a lot of programs um, that uh, certainly they campaigned on and pushed for and that the public generally like things like, you know, national child care and the Canada Child Benefit um, and other programs. But, um, you know, this is a, a government that is hitting sort of an economic brick wall as the economy starts to slow down, as those debt charges start to spiral and come home to roost at higher interest rates. Um, you know, all of those things, all of those factors start to add up. And so what we saw yesterday was a, a fiscal update that uh, recognizes that. You did not see any big spending programs. And as I know we're going to get into them, but the, the changes that the government did make, the new initiatives they are launching, are almost all initiatives that don't actually directly cost the government money. And speaking of some of those items, I mean, key among this update was a focus on housing. What goodies are in there for people who are feeling the pinch on housing costs or feeling a struggle with finding a place to live? What what does this update do for them? Yeah, so it's a couple of things here. Um, you know, first among them is uh, a commitment for $15 billion in low-cost loans uh, for people who are building apartments. A lot of apartment developers out there have told this government that with interest rates as high as they are, they you know they can't finance new projects. They really struggle to do that. The math stops working for them. Um, and so these new low-cost loans, now th- there is an existing fund. And so what the government has done is expanded that fund with new money that will kick in starting in 2026, um, another $15 billion. And what this money does is it allows those apartment developers to borrow, you know, basically using the government's interest rate. Uh, and that helps keeps their costs down. So the theory the government is operating on is that if you have more supply in the market, prices will go down when it comes to rent. Uh, that's why they're also taking a tougher stand on Airbnb. So a number of provinces and some municipalities across the country have taken steps to ban uh, Airbnb or, you know, severely uh, restrict its use, uh, requiring licenses and things like that. Um, what the government is doing is, A, it's offering municipalities a little support in enforcing those bans, a little financial support. But one of the big things they're doing, and again, is it fits into this mold of things that don't actually cost the government money. Uh, they're having Revenue Canada clamp down on uh, those Airbnb expenses. So right now, if you have an Airbnb and you rent it out and you pay for cable and internet and heat and electricity, you can count those as expenses against the income the Airbnb generates. Um, But if you're operating an Airbnb going forward in an area where it is prohibited, where you shouldn't be operating it, you won't be able to claim those expenses. And the government's really hopeful that that will push a lot of people who have a a short-term rental like an Airbnb uh, to put it back in as a long-term rental uh, or sell it and sort of create more supply that way. The one thing they are doing, I think one of the looming concerns that a lot of people have in this economy is mortgage renewals. A bunch of mortgages that, you know, were first uh, created, you know, five years ago and interest rates were below 2%. 
those mortgages are going to come up for renewal in the next couple of years, and people are going to be paying much higher interest rates, and that's going to be a big shock for people. So what the government's doing here is setting out a new charter with banks. A lot of this is stuff that the industry already does voluntarily, but they're going to be sort of strongly encouraged to do it by the government. So things like working with homeowners when they run into trouble and offering them better terms or better, longer amortizations to help keep them in their home. They're going to make other changes along that line. They're going to make changes to the renewal process for mortgages that'll make it easier for people to shop around and get better rates. But again, you know, all of these items are things that don't directly cost the money. The, the $15 billion in loans is coming through the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporations. It's not on the government's books. And that's because the government just doesn't have room. We'll be right back. Were there any other big ticket items uh, from the government on this that would appeal to voters or, or was it a fairly thin document? You know, again, I would say it's, it's a thin document. Um, the government is doing a few things, but, you know, there are lots of calls for them to provide another GST rebate or things like that, some sort of direct payment to help people with grocery costs and things like that, um, you know, changes to taxes for people on low income, lots of sort of pushes that way, but none of that is there. And I, I think it's largely because the government realizes, you know, it, it can't afford that. Um, some of the experts I talked to said that, you know, Canada is in a good financial situation overall, especially compared to the world. There is a reason this country has a AAA credit rating. But if we don't, the, what the experts were saying is that if we don't show serious prudence on that, if we don't continue to show restraint uh, on these things, we'd be pushing the um, limits of that rating. And, and some of those agencies might have bigger questions. Now, obviously, this comes out in a climate where the liberals are tanking in various public opinion polls, depending which one you look at. And there's even been talk that, you know, the government may not last its full mandate till 2025. So I, with that in mind, looking at some of the political reaction to it, how did the conservatives try and position this update? I mean, the conservatives, very consistent in that message that this is another example of yet more debt the government is adding to the books. They're not taking things seriously, uh, even though there is, is no mention of it because it hasn't changed or been adapted. The conservative leader in his response was quick to mention the carbon tax because he knows about the political unpopularity of that. He's bringing that to the fore because he's won votes doing it so far. So uh, the conservative response was quite typical, I would say, what we expected, criticizing this government on its economic management. The NDP response, uh, I would say, was more muted. They're, they're sticking with their partners on this. You know, They are not talking about abandoning the confidence and supply agreement or anything like that over this update. And they are saying that the government should be doing more in a lot of areas, uh, but not really willing to push them, uh, you know, through their power in the minority government. Did NDP leader Jagmeet Singh actually offer any reasoning as to why, if he's yet again disappointed with something the liberals have done, whether it's like the pharmacare or dental care plan or... or affordability measures. It, it, it seems like he's constantly unhappy with his, his partner in all of this. Did, did he suggest why 
they haven't lost his confidence yet? You know, I, I would say that the NDP leader has said sort of the same thing every time this question pops up. Um, and I think there are moments in which the NDP is genuinely disappointed and frustrated by the liberal government. They are not partners. They are not, you know, they are not aligned on most things. Uh, but when the NDP looks at that confidence and supply agreement, they tend to look at its outcomes. They tend to look at uh, initiatives that they wouldn't have gotten any other way. Um, so things like that dental care program, I've actually never heard the NDP express disappointment at the dental care program. They think it's rolling out exactly the way it's supposed to. And I think they're quite confident that they wouldn't have gotten it uh, without aligning themselves with the uh, liberals in this deal. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of uh, appreciation for that, I would say. And I think Ultimately, what keeps the NDP in this deal, as, as frustrated as they may be with the liberals on a wide variety of things, is the knowledge that as long as they stay in the deal, those you know policy wins that they see as having negotiated will keep coming. And also, I, I, I can imagine that the NDP are, are potentially worried about a popular conservative party making gains at the expense of both the NDPs and the liberals should there be an election. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look across the country, uh, there are wide areas where the race isn't between the conservatives uh, and the liberals, or even the conservatives, the liberals and the NDP. There are many, many ridings and a growing number of ridings in which the race is between the conservatives and the NDP. They are blue-orange ridings. You're seeing both the conservatives and the NDP target each other and sort of ignore the liberals in a lot of those writings and a lot of their fundraising pitches and their appeals nationally. So I think part of also what the NDP is factoring in too is, you know, in this confidence and supply agreement, they have leverage, they have the ability to make change. They wouldn't have that ability, certainly in a conservative majority government, and they probably wouldn't have that ability in a conservative uh, minority government the way they do in this liberal minority government. Well, as always, great to talk politics with you, Ryan. Thanks for your time. No problem. Take care. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Ryan Tumulty. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.